If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 14. If you can get to the book of Psalms, you can head right and you'll eventually be in the large uh, prophecy or vision of Isaiah. Um, Today we're going to cover a large section. We're going to cover uh, chapter 14, verse 24, all the way through the end of chapter 18, verse 7. Uh, As we've together been learning more about the vision of the prophet Isaiah, I've been learning how to preach a large prophetic book like this. I've never done it before. Um, It's been different than teaching through Paul's letters or through the Gospels or through uh, even Old Testament narrative. And the question I keep asking myself is how much? Uh, How much detail should we get into? How much historical information is going to be helpful or necessary for us to understand it? And how much should we cover this week? Um, It's been hard at times for me to not walk through each verse and to get into all the details of Isaiah's words. Uh, There's a temptation, too, to try to to draw out all of the historical information related to these nations that we're studying and the events that are talked about. And if those details are something that you want to dig into, uh, let me know. I'd be happy to have a conversation and we can look at some of these things uh, even if there's a group that wants to meet and we want to try to understand the historical context of Moab or Philistia or some of these other nations, let's let's talk about it. However, on Sunday mornings, my burden has been to help us to see who God is revealing himself to be to his people and then how we are supposed to live in light of who he is showing himself to be. Um, that that could mean taking that big picture of saying who is God and how do we respond to who he's revealing himself to be. That could mean that we leave here with a little bit of uncertainty about some of Isaiah's words and metaphors or uncertainty about the historical happenings in each chapter. But hopefully we're at least clear on what God's core message to us is about himself and about our souls. And so to that end, last week we were, we were reminded that the Bible at its core is a revelation of who God is. And it reveals God as trustworthy. Uh, the scriptures show us God's character, and that is intended to fill us with faith in him because we see that he is faithful, that he's a God we can trust. And here in Isaiah 13 through 23, we find these 10 oracles, 10 divine messages of judgment against the nation's around Israel and Israel itself. And it's split into these two sets of five. They reveal this judgment that's coming on the nations, but their deeper purpose is to build up the faith of God's people by giving them a vision of the God who is ruling over all of the people who seem to be ruling on the earth. I read these words from Barry Webb last week. Let me say them again. These words, meaning the oracles, are spoken to remind Israel that no matter what the nations do to her, her final destiny is secure because it is the Lord, not they, who shapes the course of history. He is the Lord of the nations and his judgment on them has its ultimate goal, has as its ultimate goal the salvation of his people. With that being said, Sometimes who God is revealed to be in the scriptures is confusing, especially in the prophets. We're not sure what to think of some of his actions and even some of his words. We read these and other parts of the Bible and we think to ourselves, you know, I would do things a lot differently than what God did. 
And our faith can actually tend to, to waver because of our, our, our understanding about who he is becomes a little bit clouded. So while I say that these chapters are meant to build up the faith of God's people, sometimes we can read them and they might shake our faith. They might confuse us a little bit about who God is. They can instill confidence, but they can also raise questions. And they raise questions because the world is a complex place. It's a place that's filled with good and evil. It's a place that's filled with darkness and light and suffering and injustice and temptation and difficulty. It's not an easy place to figure out. And the world is complex and sometimes it's hard to make sense of it all, which is why I think God is complex and sometimes hard to make sense of. We might say that a complex world like ours needs a complex God to help make things a little less complicated. It's, it's as if God, and maybe you can get a picture. I'm trying to get this picture in my mind and I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's as if God in all of his intricacies and the depth of who he is, and even in his apparent contradictions of character, that he's able to take into himself all of the confusion of the world that we have. And he brings order out of chaos, which is what he's been doing since the very beginning. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's, it's as if all the confusion comes into God who is just as complex, and yet in God who is complex, things start to make sense. We understand how things are supposed to be. That's not to say that we're going to have all of our questions answered now, but it is to say that, that, what, that, that what it, what's going to happen is that the character of God is going to give us the best answers to the questions that we have as we walk through pain and the complexities, uh, complexities of life. If we're growing to understand who he is, no matter how complex he is, it's going to make sense of the craziness of the world around us. I'm still trying to figure this out, so let me know if you got any thoughts. But this is, it's a simplistic God will not work. We need a God that can hold all the tensions that we have in this world. And so we need a God that, that can handle that. And yet within all of those complexities, I think spinning off from that, we start to see some truths. And these are simple bedrock truths that emerge. And one of them is this, and this is what I think we're gonna see today, is God is always working to lead us to trust him alone. God is always working to lead us to trust in him alone. In the midst of everything that he's doing, that's where he's pushing us towards. He's pushing us towards faith and towards trust in him alone. In my mind's eye, I see the, the picture of a, a really complex maze. Maybe you like doing mazes. You can think about a maze on a paper, or maybe you can think about a a corn field that's, that's a maze, or maybe like a, a maze in an English garden, but just an astoundingly complex maze. And yet a maze with no dead ends. That there's lots of divergent paths and there's places you might go and have to wander for a little while, but every route that you take in this maze is going to eventually funnel you out of it. And the thought here is that in life, every path that we find ourselves on, it's going to eventually lead to us seeing that our hope has to be in God alone. Whatever you're going through, it's going to funnel you to the place of saying, God, you're my only hope. Because God is always working to lead us to trust in him alone. 
Today we're going to look at a number of oracles here in Isaiah, and we're going to see God's sovereign hand and his purposes and his promises. We're going to see that he's calling people to, to lean on him alone, to be firm in faith, to find him as their only refuge. We're going to see that his judgments on us and on others are intended to open our eyes and to lead us to repentance and to lead us to, to trust in him alone. But maybe you just, that image of the maze rings true and you feel like you're trapped in some sort of dead end. That, that circumstances or feelings or whatever's going on, they're leading you to think that you're just kind of stuck. And my hope is that you would leave today not asking why God would lead you to a dead end, but instead asking how this apparent dead end is going to lead you to deeper faith and trust in God. Because it's not a dead end, it's leading you to trust in him. So with that in mind that God's always working to lead us to trust in him alone, the first truth that we're going to see in these oracles is God's purposes and promises are sure. God's purposes and promises are sure. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. This is the end of the oracle against Babylon, but it starts to talk about Assyria. And then the next part, beginning in verse 28, is the oracle against Philistia and the Philistines. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, this is what God says, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion. And in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. Uh, last week, we looked at the full oracle against Babylon, which speaks about the broader rebellion of the, of the nations and even the rebellion of all prideful forces of evil. The oracle ends with this word that we just read in, in chapter 14, verses 24 through 27, and predicting the fall of Assyria. And so we ask, why does the oracle against Babylon switch back to talking about Assyria? Well, here's the thing. The certainty of Assyria's fall and the close historical reality of it for Judah would have made it an, an affirmation that the oracles against the nations were just as certain. Let me say that another way. The fall of Assyria locally speaks to the certainty of the broader judgment that's coming on the nations. The prophecy against Assyria is like the earnest money that you pay when you want to buy a house. 
It's money that says, I'm serious about doing this and I can follow through with the purchase. The prophecy and the, the assurance that Assyria is going to fall as predicted makes Judah say, God's gonna come true and he's gonna fulfill all these words against all the nations. If he's done it for Assyria, all these other things are going to happen as well. Beyond that, what stands out in those four verses as you read them is God's sovereign purposes. We're forcefully reminded that God's purposes are sure. We all know about making plans and then having to change them. Uh, We say we're going to be somewhere at a certain time, uh, only to have something come up that makes us late or keeps us from coming at all. We've all experienced that. We sleep in, we fail to leave, we get sick. But not so with God. When God makes a plan, he always follows through. You know what God has never said? He's never said, well, that didn't go at all how I planned. He's never said that. I've said that. (laughs) And when he said that he's going to break the Assyrian yoke from the shoulders of Judah, they could trust that he would do it. God's word, God's purposes are certain. Verses 26 through 27 extend that certainty from Assyria's destruction in particular to God's purposes over the whole earth. His sovereign, powerful hand is stretched out over the whole earth, over all the nations, ready to break the yoke of oppression off his children and to offer up a light and easy burden that we see in following Jesus. That sounds too wonderful to me. Could that ever happen? Could it ever be that oppression and toil and injustice and drudgery are going to cease in this world? God says it will. And if God says it will, then it will. What, because what's the answer to the questions of verse 27? Kids, maybe you can help me out. What's the answer to this question? The Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? No one is the answer. I'll give you a clue. The next question is the same answer. God's hand is stretched out. Who's going to turn God's hand back and keep him from doing something? No one. That's the question. The answer, the answer is, is no one. No one can annul God's purposes. No one can turn God's hand back. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the glorious king over all things, visible and invisible. His purposes are sure. The oracle concerning Philistia, which is in verses 28 through 32, continue this theme of God's sovereign control, and they emphasize that God's promises are sure. God's promises are sure. It's framed by verse 28 that talks about the death of King Ahaz. So when we read about this broken rod in verse 29, we can conclude that that's a reference to Ahaz in particular, his death, but also probably to the Davidic line, the Davidic kings. Meaning that Philistia, this kingdom north of Judah, the Philistines, they were rejoicing that Ahaz had died because they thought that King Hezekiah, who succeeded him as as the ruler of Judah, that he would be a, a weaker king, that he'd be a king that they could manipulate, that he'd be they'd be a king, he'd be a king they could they could conquer. And they were rejoicing at the thought that Judah's power found in the line of David was seeming to fade away, that, that Ahaz's death meant the death of Judah's hopes and dreams, that David's kingdom was going to fall to the ground, just like Goliath the Philistine had fallen to the ground by David. But Motyer says the faithful, the faithlessness of people 
does not dilute the faithfulness of God. The Lord tells Philistia that they need to hold off on planning their victory parade. (laughs) He says, don't rejoice just yet. Because the rest of the oracle says that the rod of the line of David, while it was broken, was going to rise up as a powerful and poisonous snake and come to conquer Philistia. That image seems to recall uh, Moses' staff. You remember Moses' staff that he threw down that became uh, a serpent. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's this idea that though broken, the line of David is not abolished. God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, the promise that a king would always reign on his throne, the promise of a Messiah and a rescuer, that's going to come true. It sounds strange to our ears, doesn't it? The image of a flying, fiery snake that points to the Messiah. We don't think about snakes pointing towards Jesus, do we? An Aramaic translation, an old translation and interpretation of the Bible called the Targum I I came across. It communicates Isaiah 14, 29 like this though. It says, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of ye, because the government that hath made you servile is broken, because from the children of Jesse shall come forth the Messiah, and his works among you shall be as a flying serpent." It wouldn't be the first time that a snake was used to symbolize salvation, would it? You remember when the Lord sent fiery serpents um, to punish Israel? The Lord told Moses to make a bronze serpent, to put it on a pole and to lift it up so that everyone who looked on it would be healed and would be saved. That's what Jesus is talking about in what we read earlier from John 3. He says that when he is lifted up from the earth like that serpent, speaking of his crucifixion, he's going to draw all people to himself. The purposes of God to bring relief to us and the promises of God to send a Savior are fulfilled in Jesus. And when he, we come to him in repentance and faith, we're saved from God's wrath against our sin and we are healed. The promise that, made, that God made to David was sure. Ahaz's death had nothing to do with God fulfilling his promises. He would do it. And just as the destruction of the Assyrians helped Judah to know that God's purposes and his promises were sure, the coming of Jesus for us assures us that we can trust God's promises and purposes. We can trust that, we, that he will come again. We can have faith in him. He will do what he says. We all know this feeling of, of being let down. You, you know about being late. You also know about being the person that was forgotten and that no one showed up when you expected them to. We all know what it feels like when someone doesn't keep their word to us. But Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, they assure us that all of God's promises are sure and certain in Christ. That in the midst of all of our enemies, of those who would seek to harm us, we can know that God is at work. He's working in us for his good, for our good and for his glory. We know that when, when disease and pain threaten to crush us and threaten to crush the people that we love, We can trust that this new kingdom is coming. There is a kingdom that Jesus has promised that's free of pain and it's free of death and it's free of sorrow. It it will come. When we sin and when the world feels oppressive, we can take heart because we know that Jesus has overcome the world and he will come and make it new. When you get to the end of the day, and you have a longer to-do list at the end of the day than you did at the beginning of the day, (laughs) you can know that eternal rest 
is coming, that Jesus has promised that arrest is coming and that it will happen. And you can trust that no matter how much you have done or not done, it has no effect on the depth of God's love for you. We live in this world where everything seems uncertain. And in the midst of that, we're invited to hold on to God's good purposes and to, to his great promises, to know that they are sure. And that certain that certainty is this invitation to trust the Lord. So I would extend that invitation to you this afternoon and to my own heart to trust that God's purposes and promises are sure. Trust in him alone. Everything else is going to let you down. God never will. Isaiah 14.32 kind of forms this bridge for us then to, from the oracle concerning Philistia to the oracle concerning Moab, which follows. It speaks about Zion, the, the city of God, as the place where all are invited to come and find refuge. And so in the midst of, of judgment, Isaiah calls out to us and he says, refuge is available to all. That's the second thing I want us to think about. God's purposes and promises are sure. And second, refuge is available to all. Refuge may be a word you're not familiar with. Maybe just think about a big castle. The Bible often talks about the Lord as a tower that you can run in and find safety. That's what we're thinking about. Uh, We see this in Isaiah 15 and 16, which contains the oracle concerning Moab. It begins in chapter 15, and in verses 1 through 4, we hear about Moab's grief about the coming judgment of the Lord. But it turns, and it makes a surprise turn in verse 5, because it turns in verse 5 to the Lord's grief. It goes from Moab's grief at judgment to the Lord's grief over Moab. Listen to these verses, and and there's three, four, or because statements that reveal why the Lord is grieving. You can look for those statements. But Isaiah 15, beginning in verse 5, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath Shelishiah. For at the ascent of Luhith they go up weeping, on the road to Horonim. They raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brooks of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglim. Her wailing reaches to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. The vision that we're getting here that's moving the Lord to tears is of the refugees of war. We know something of this even in our day, what a refugee of war looks like. It's people that are displaced from their homes. They're carrying all their belongings with them. Their their land is a desolation. And God hears their wailing and he sees their hopelessness before their enemies and the Lord weeps for them. We think about Jesus who was moved as he looked at his people and saw them as sheep with no shepherd. And here God is moved by refugees who have no home. The question though is, isn't God the one bringing the judgment on them? God is the one punishing them for their wickedness. And so my mind says, If you don't want them to suffer, then don't punish them. 
many a child has tried to use this logic. If you don't want to punish me for disobeying, then don't. (laughs) And yet we see that God can judge sin and he can grieve over the suffering of sinners at the same time. That he can call us to sing a taunt song over the wicked in chapter 14. And then he can reveal his grief and, and the fact that he takes no delight in the wicked here. Webb is helpful again. He says, in this lament, we see God executing judgment with tears in his eyes. What a good picture. He goes on, it should remind us that there is no conflict between loving people and warning them of judgment to come. The one is actually a necessary consequence of the other. So we see here that God, that Yahweh is not only a God that that we should trust, but also that we should emulate. We, we trust God. You know, what, what I, the reason that I see to trust God here is that we see that God is not a vindictive, vicious, exasperated God who is just lashing out in unreserved anger. That's not who our God is. And we emulate him when we also in love call people to find their refuge in the Lord, even as we boldly speak about the consequences of rejecting him of the reality that divine wrath is going to come on everyone who rejects the Lord and who rejects the refuge that's offered in Christ. The question that we, when we see God's heart is, do we share God's grief at the judgment that's coming? Do we weep over the suffering that sin brings into the lives of others? I think one way that in our culture to, to foster that kind of compassion is to beware of gloating over your enemies. Push against, there's a a reactionary spirit in our day that that likes to to gloat over those that think differently or that that fall prey to their own devices. Don't gloat over people though. Reject the uncompassionate response to the pain of others, even if the pain that they feel is a result of sin. Beware of a gloating heart and instead seek a compassionate heart like God's. At the beginning of of 16, then we see it looks like Moab actually is going to turn to the Lord. And and the thought of the nations coming in leads to a a vision of the coming glory of the the future kingdom. Notice this, look at verse, uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse one. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by the way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Send a lamb to Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. This is then God speaking to, to, um, to his people. He says, give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast, Israel. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The picture here, I think, is is that Moab is coming to Zion to find refuge 
and Zion is granting refuge. And then it's of this, the glory of the kingdom where the destroyer and the oppressor is no more. Instead, God's king, the, the greater David is sitting on this throne of faithfulness and steadfast love and he's ruling over a kingdom of justice and righteousness. This is the compassionate God who weeps over sinners and the just God who rightly punishes rebellion. This is the king we're longing for. And this is the king that Moab should have embraced and they were called to embrace. But verse six tells us that they weren't ready. The Philistines were not ready, the, the, the Moabites were not ready to bow the knee to God's king. Look at verses six and seven. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence in his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hereseth. You see how once again, pride reveals itself to be the great enemy of faith. Arrogance and boasting keep Moab from finding refuge in the Lord. And the Lord again mourns for them. If you read verses eight through 11, again, the Lord mourns. But Isaiah 16, 12 summarizes the end result for us. This is what it says. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. Instead of turning to the Lord in their pride, they turned away from the Lord and they turned back to their high places. They prayed to their gods and they prayed fervently but to no avail. And the certainty of their destruction is what's spelled out in verses 13 and 14. That picture of them praying and pleading with their gods reminds us that fervency in religion is of no value if it doesn't lead us to faith in Christ. Fervency in religion, any religion, is of no value if it doesn't lead us to faith in Christ. Prayers offered to false gods, even if they're offered consistently and constantly and passionately, they don't matter. We can think about the prophets of Baal who offered sacrifices and cut themselves, but it's only the true and living God to whom Elijah prayed that brought down fire from heaven. We can think about the followers of Islam around the world. They pray five times a day to Allah. But Allah and Muhammad are a false refuge. You can think about the enlightened person who wakes up every day and looks deep inside their soul. Maybe more consistently than you and I read our Bible. But they can't save themselves from the wrath to come by looking deep inside. Those kind of statements of exclusivity ring a little harsh in our pluralistic day, but they are true and they're spoken by a God who speaks of judgment with tears in his eyes. And that's how we speak them. We don't speak them in pride, the kind of pride that would have kept us from bowing our knee to King Jesus, but we speak them in humility that sees that it's only by God's grace that we have been invited to come and sit at the Lord's table. That we, like the, young, the rich young ruler, we too could have walked away sad at the call of Jesus to forsake all and find refuge in him and to follow him. But instead, by God's grace, we have found him to be a refuge that will save us in the last day. This oracle against Moab, the whole picture that's here, reminds us of the way that the gospel continually goes out into the world, doesn't it? It reminds us that, that Jesus himself came to his own, 
that he longed and wept over them. He longed to gather them as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they would not. It reminds us that Paul spoke boldly and compassionately throughout the book of Acts. He called people to faith in Christ. But then his last words in the book of Acts are the words of Isaiah 6. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this, pe- for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. It reminds us that we too are going to face opposition. We're going to face rejection as we speak forth this message. But we must continue to speak forth the truth in love. And know that we're part of a long line of those who have. Well, let's turn now and think about those of us who have found refuge in Christ. Those of us who have humbled ourselves and by God's grace found Jesus to be the refuge that we're longing for. What about us? I think the oracle of chapters 17 and 18 have something to say to us because they're addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. And I think this is what they're saying to us. Last point for this afternoon. Judgment leads to repentance. And repentance leads to life. For God's people, judgment leads to repentance. And repentance leads to life. Again, the oracle of chapters 17 and 18 is directed to Israel. They're identified here as Ephraim. But it's also directed to Damascus, which would refer to to Syria. You remember that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel were in an alliance. So this is directed to both of them. And there's also, when we get to chapter 18, we, we read about Cush, which is Ethiopia. And they're going to stand forth as another possible refuge that Israel could hope in. And so this oracle that's in chapter 17 and 18 is against, it's, it's these three nations. It's, it's the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim. It's, it's Syria, called Damascus. And it's Ethiopia, Cush. Uh, so those, those three nations. So you remember, if you've been with us, that that the the northern kingdom of Israel had formed this alliance with Syria to stand against Assyria, and they were calling Judah to join them in this alliance, but Judah resisted that and said, no, I'm not going to do that. And here we find that this refuge that they had sought through alliance, it didn't work. And Assyria was coming to destroy them. Syria would fall to Assyria in 732 BC and Israel in 722 Verses 1 through 6 describe these two once powerful nations as a man that is racked with hunger. And, and verses 12 through 14 talk about the power of Assyria. And yet in the midst of that picture, we actually see that there's these olive trees that were decimated. There's a few olives on the trees. It reminds us of that remnant. Remember that amongst God's people, even when judgment comes, there are those that remain faithful. I want us to look at some other verses, though. The, the judgment on, on Israel and Syria was, was strong. So what's the result of this judgment? What's it going to be on God's people? How are they going to respond to this judgment that has come after they had sought refuge in something and someone other than God? And by extension, how, how do we respond when the idols in our lives fail? 
when God judges us for the way that we're, we seek hope and security and value and satisfaction and things outside of him. When he brings conviction on us because we've been trusting in things other than the Lord, how do we respond? The hope is that God's conviction and judgment would lead us to repentance and to returning to him. So listen, there's three in that day statements. Remember a favorite phrase of Isaiah in chapter 17, verses seven through 11. And they talk about what's gonna happen as a result of the day of the Lord. What's gonna happen? How is Israel going to respond? 17, verse seven. In that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his fingers have made, either the ashram or the altar of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. I said three the third one is in verse four. So if you were looking for three and, <laughs> and only saw two, that's all I saw too. The third one is, the, the first one's in verse four. But what, what, what do we see here? Verse nine shows us that the cities that Israel had hoped in, they're ruined. And verse 10 talks about how the sacrifices that Israel offered to the false gods that they were, they were finding their hope in rather than in the rock of, that is the Lord, that those sacrifices were, were worthless. And so the hope of verse eight is that God's people would repent at his judgment, that they would turn away from idols and that they would trust in their maker and in him alone. And this is where chapter 18 comes in because Cush or Ethiopia, Ethiopia is held out as another possible refuge. Maybe don't trust in the Lord. Maybe, you know, Syria didn't work out. Why don't you trust in Ethiopia? Look at verses 18, eight, chapter 18, verses one and two. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Ethiopia sounds like a, a strong and trustworthy nation to put your hope in. Maybe they're going to be a better ally than Syria was. But if you read verses three through six, you find that they're just as unreliable as all the other nations. They can't be trusted to bring deliverance. Nothing can. No one can, except for the Lord. As God's people, we have to believe this. We have to believe that nothing and no one else can save or satisfy our souls. We have to strive to see that every day. And when God's judgment and conviction comes, we need to repent and turn and look to the maker alone. As God's children too, though, we're longing for this day when all peoples will see that God alone is the rock that they can trust, that they won't trust in anything else or anyone else or any other nation. They'll trust in him alone. Remember, God's judgment on the nations is not 
simply intended to be judgment. It's intended to draw them to himself. It's intended to draw his people and to draw all people to him. And so the last verse of chapter 18, verse 7, is a bookend to the beginning. And it speaks of this day when the nations that other nations went to are going to go to the Lord. Look at verse 7 of chapter 18. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts. From who? From a people tall and smooth. Does that sound familiar? Verse two, from this nation that Israel is called to hope in. What are they doing? They're bringing tribute to the Lord. From a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Mount Zion. It's the only safe place. It's the only hope for deliverance from the wrath that God describes and foretells in these chapters. His judgment on sinners and his conviction of his children is meant to draw us to trusting in him, to going to to him who is the mountain. Some people say that all roads and all religions lead to God. That there's various trails, but they're all going to get to the top of the mountain. But God's word shows us that all roads do not lead to the top of the mountain. They don't all lead to God. But you know what they do lead to? They lead us and they're seeking to push us into the one way that does lead to salvation. And it's the way of forsaking all other refuges and all of my own works and trusting in Christ alone. Because God, through all of this, is always working to lead us to trust in him alone. He's thwarting all these plans, tearing down all of the refuges, not simply to punish people, but so that they would turn and trust in him. He reveals himself in his control of this world and his, his purposes and promises are sure. Our purposes and the plans of the nations and the promises of false religion, they're going to fall. And when they do, we're told to trust in the Lord who is sovereign over all. We're shown here that all other refuges are going to fall apart. And when we see the the foolishness and the weakness of the things that we're trusting in, we are supposed to run to Jesus because he is the strong tower that will save us from the wrath to come. And when God judges us and convicts us as his children for hoping in people and things other than him, he's trying to lead us to repentance, a repentance that will lead to life. I pray that we would seek to see how at all, all, everything that God is doing is pushing us to, to trust in him alone. Going back to that picture of the maze, when you find yourself in those dead ends and you're just not sure what in the world God is doing, there's a lot of questions that come to your mind. Here's one that might be helpful. Father, how are you using this to lead me to trust you alone? God, how are you using this difficulty, this dead end, this thing I can't understand? How are you using this to lead me to trust you alone? It's okay to ask hard questions like why? What in the world are you doing, God? Those, the Psalms give us those words. But hopefully we can also say, what are you doing, God, to lead me to faith? We can be confused. We can be even frustrated by what God does. And I'm not giving you all the reasons for why he does difficult things in our lives, but I think at least one of them, one of the reasons he puts us in hard places, he puts us in dead ends, 
is because he's trying to funnel us out to faith. He's trying to lead us to trust him more. We're going to need to ask those kind of questions until the day we reach Zion. Zion, where Jesus is going to reign on a throne of justice and righteousness, a throne of faithfulness and steadfast love. That's the, the city that we're, we're hoping for, and that's the king that we are waiting for. And if God's purposes are sure, then as sure as the, the sun rose today, we know that nothing can annul or negate God's purposes and promises. That he will return that this kingdom will be set up here on earth and all his children will be brought in. And so may we continually to, to walk in faith towards Zion, call other people to join us on the narrow road that leads to life.